Thank you, praise team. I appreciate that. And I'm looking forward to next Sunday, aren't you? I mean, when, this is just, I saw how they were practicing this week up, up here, and it's, it's going to be awesome. So I'm just telling you, uh, you got to come next week. Bring your friends. It's going to be an exciting time. By the way, today begins a new series. That's exciting, isn't it? As we, we're going to be studying 2 Peter. And uh, now if it's exciting because you're, you're sick of Hebrews, then that's a problem, right? But, uh, no, of course we're excited. It's something new. We're going to be studying 2 Peter together. And this series is called Deceived, as we study 2 Peter. By the way, um, deception isn't always a horrible thing. And, and, uh, and so, in fact, let, let's start. We're going to, it's okay if we start a little bit differently than we normally do. And I'm going to ask you to do something. And, and I want to see 100% participation if we can. Take your hands and stick them out right in front of you, just like this. Can you do that? Thumbs up, you know, and hands right in front of us. It looks like we're pretty close to 100% uh, participation out there. All right, very good. Now I want you to, to take your thumbs and, and bring them inward so that they're down like this. All right, so everyone's, everyone's got them like this. All right, good, good, everyone, yep. Now take your right hand and go over top of your left hand and connect them so they're like this. All right, so that you're, they're, they're folded just like this. Exactly, just like, just like that right there. Make, uh, thumb, thumbs are down. Now last part, so I want to take your thumbs and just rotate them up to the top. All right. Yeah, it was, it, it was funny to watch your faces from here. Yep. You guys did some, some crazy things, and I saw a lot of this. This, this is what you look like. And you're like, what? Like, how did you do that? You know? And, and so, of course, being deceived, it can be fun, right? It can be, it can be a fun thing. We, that's why we like uh, magicians or illusionists, we should say, right? Um, because it, we like our, our mind to be tricked a little bit. Um, let me do one more quick one. I need a volunteer that has a $20 bill. All right, Jason, you got a $20 bill. Come on, come on up for a second. He has no idea what I'm going to do. All right, can you pull out that $20 bill for me? All right, this is a pretty cool trick. Um, and this right here is a $1 bill. I'm going to change that $20 bill into a $1 bill. Thank you. You made me see. All right. So, uh, great trick, right? I love that trick. And my whole family thanks you as we go out to eat or something to, to dinner. That's, we're gonna, we'll talk about that trick the whole time. But we, sometimes we don't like tricks, right? Because deception can be fun, it can be exciting, it can also be, it can also be a, a bad thing, right? And we lose things for that. By the way, I can't do that. So. There you go. Do I get the dollar back? Right. Okay, good. So, thank you, Jason. But, but we, you know, we, we can be deceived by, by things, and, and sometimes it's not a big deal. Other times, boy, the stakes are very high, and, and it, can be a big, it can be a big deal. Um, if you, have you ever traveled to, a, like, a third-world country, and there's a bunch of people that meet you off, of the, and they all want to help you, and then you find out that your wallet's gone, and, you're, you know, and all that kind of stuff? You find that there are a lot of people in this world that want to trick you because they want something from you, they want to rob you blind. Um, in fact, not that long ago, I received uh, a Facebook uh, friend invite or whatever they call it, you know, where you, to, to become someone's friend. And it was so, someone from, the, from our congregation here. And so I, of course, said, said yes. And, but in my mind, I thought I, thought I already accepted a, refer- a friend request from her at one point. 
And, uh, but didn't think much of it. And then a, a little bit later, a message pops up and said, hey, did I tell you about this grant that I received, you know, this free money from the government? And anyone can do it if they fill out the paperwork. And immediately, where did my mind go? All right, yeah, this is a scam. So I quickly looked up to see, and sure enough, this was the second friend request from the same person. So I knew something wasn't right, you know, something that this was a scam. And they, they said, did you receive it? Because I received $75,000, and I can help you do it if you need help. And I'm like, oh, thank you, <laughs> right? Thank you. And so instead of just letting it go, I had to, I, you know me, so, so I had to say, 75000 I got 150000 I said, and if you give me your social security number and your bank information, I can help you get the other 75000 And that ended the conversation. <laughs> right? Because we've all been there, we've all had people try to deceive us, and, we, and, we, and sometimes you can, you can spot them a mile off. Sometimes they're a little bit more deceptive, and, and we can get tricked, and we, we, we can get tricked pretty easily sometimes. But when it comes to things that carry eternal consequences, things that have importance that will last not just for today, but for, for eternity, we do not want to be deceived. Amen? And when you think of the things that are that important, we definitely do not want to be deceived. And that's really the purpose of Peter's second epistle. epistle. This is what uh, it's all about. And so today what I'd like to do, uh, just to to, to lay out a little roadmap of where we're headed today, I want to introduce you to Peter, the author. I want to introduce you to 2 Peter, the book, and lay a foundation for us to understand quite a bit more as we study 2 Peter. Does that sound fair? Does that sound fair? Okay, good, good. Make sure you're with me there. So let's begin by taking a look at the author. The author of, uh, of 2 Peter is, drum roll here, right? It's Peter, right? So Peter, and, and we all think we know some things about Peter, uh, but let's walk through his life. And, and, uh, and so I'm just going to take the book of Matthew real fast and, and uh, with a couple of other passages uh, and just take a, a quick look. We're not going to have to read all of it, but just to understand a little bit about the background and life of Peter when you go to Matthew chapter 4, we're introduced to, to Peter, and Peter with his brother Andrew are common fishermen. And what's interesting about the story is it says that Jesus comes up to them and says two words. He says, follow me. And what did they do? They dropped their nets, and they just followed him. I mean, I think that's an awesome story when you think about it. It's such a short story in Scripture. But here you have Peter and Andrew. They're being told to follow Jesus. They knew some things about Jesus, obviously. They had heard him. They knew that he was performing miracles. And Jesus says, follow me. And that was it. They were sold. They dropped their nets and, and followed him. How many of us would be willing if, if, if Jesus were to say, go do this for me. I'm going to follow me. I'm, we're, we're heading to, uh, to, to a foreign country or we're going to head to somewhere. And you, you don't even know where. And you, how many of you would just say, okay, well, um, all right, boss. Won't see you tomorrow. <laughs> I'm on my way. How about you just drop everything you have? Your, your job security. Every, this is the kind of guy that Peter was. <clears throat> kind of what, I call it a, a jump in with both feet kind of a person. Right? And, and here he, he follows the Lord. Um, a few chapters later, we see that uh, Peter's mother-in-law is sick. So he introduces her to Jesus. Jesus heals her. And, and, uh, and she begins to serve him in Matthew 8. Then in Matthew 10... I think this is a, a, a neat situation where Jesus bestowed on Peter and the, other, and the others so from the 12 the ability to perform miraculous deeds. 
So not only was Peter able to follow Jesus Christ, but at one point Jesus said, all right, I'm going to give you and 11 others, I'm going to give you the ability to perform miracles. And then he sent them out. Wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, think about that. I was just at a hospital yesterday making a call. And, and wouldn't it be awesome to be able to just walk into any room and no matter what the problem is, just say you're healed? Imagine that. And God gave Peter this ability uh, to perform miracles, to cast out demons, uh, uh, to heal diseases, incredible things. And he sent them out so that the word would quickly get out that this Jesus of Nazareth is no normal human being. And, uh, and, and Peter got to, to be one of the few that did that, uh, did that for, for Jesus Christ. In, in Matthew chapter 14, we have, and who could forget the story of, of Peter walking on the water? And so here, they're, they're in the storm, Jesus, but he sees Jesus walking on the water. And, and he, he jumps out of the boat and starts walking towards him. And that's a, that's a measure of faith that, that is rare, even amongst believers, isn't it? Now we can critique him and say, uh, you know, well, at one point he started to lose a little bit of faith and he started to sink in and he said, Jesus, save me. And, and, and Jesus picks him up. And, you know, but if we're critiquing him, where are we critiquing him from? The boat, right? I mean, we're, it's very easy to critique the guy out there from, who's walking on water, and maybe because he stumbles a little bit, we can critique him, but we're critiquing him from the boat. We're, we're the ones that we're, we're staying inside the boat. But Peter is the only one of the 12 who hopped out of the boat to go see Jesus. Uh, what a, what a, a man of, of faith. One chapter later, Jesus is speaking in, in chapter 15, and Jesus is speaking in parables, which he often did. And, and there's one point where, where if, if I were to translate it, I would have said the, the 11 of the apostles were looking at each other with blank stares. Because Jesus gave this parable, and they're, they're like, what? What does that mean? But Jesus, or, uh, Jesus gives this, and Peter is the inquisitive one who, who jumps right in, and he says, he says, explain this parable to me. He's, he's this man who just had to know. Have you ever met someone like that? Uh, I, I worked with a guy like that, uh, Cam Wolford, who... who uh, uh, we were driving down uh, in, in Costa Rica. We're driving down, and he sees like a sugar plantation. He says, "I always wondered how they've gotten the sugar, you know, from the cane to the process of to where, to where it is like we eat." So next thing I know, we're pulled over, and he's finding the owner of this plantation, and we're talking to him, right? And then he's witnessing to him. It's pretty cool. And and how does that? Why? Because he's just an inquisitive person, and Peter was that kind of a person who just had to know. Wait, here's something I don't understand. He's going to pursue it until he understands it. By the way, those people tend to learn a lot. There's a lot of wisdom in that as well. Uh, in Matthew 16, uh, who could forget, uh, Jesus is talking with his, with his disciples, and, and, uh, and, and he asks them, who, who, does the, who do others say that I am? Because people, people were starting to grasp that Jesus is no ordinary person, right? But did they genuinely understand who he was? And so the apostles said, well, some say you're this, some say you're that, some say you're the prophet Elijah being like reincarnated almost. But who do you say that I am, Jesus said. And who was the first one out of all the apostles for the lights to go on? It was Peter. He got it. All of a sudden, he, he said, I, I know who you are. You're the Messiah. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, your name is Rock for a reason. Because it's on this rock, this foundation, that Jesus is who he said he was. That Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He's going to build his entire church over that concept. 
By the way, some have interpreted that Peter is the rock that, and that he became the first pope. It's not what we see if we study the rest of the life of, of Peter, right? Uh, he, was a, he was a fallible man, um, a great man, but a fallible, a fallible one. In, in Matthew chapter 17, Peter becomes what, what we often call the inner circle. You know what we mean by that? I mean, we have the 12 disciples, but inside the 12 disciples, there were three that were very close to Jesus. They were the inner circle, we oftentimes call it. And uh, in fact, it was only these three, Peter, James, and John, that Jesus had invited with him to, to actually witness the transfiguration. Wow. I mean, what an event. And so Peter, James, and John, very few, they, these people were intimate with Jesus Christ. He said, you got to come see this. And we see the transfiguration. What an amazing thing for, for them to see. Peter was not a, an infallible man. In fact, in Matthew 26, there's one point where Jesus was explaining that he was on his way to, to Jerusalem because there he was going to be beaten, he was going to be crucified, he was going to be killed. And he was explaining this to Peter. And we talked about this uh, just a few weeks ago. But what we didn't talk about is that Peter's response was like, Lord, that's defeatism. You're, you're not going to die. You're not going to get punished. We're going to go there. We're going to do all these great things. And what did Jesus say to, to Peter? By the way, if you're rebuking Jesus, that's a problem. Right? And so he's rebuking him for his attitude. And Jesus looks at him and says, Get thee behind me, what? Satan. So he's saying, saying Peter, you've totally missed the mark here. And when I say that I'm going there, I'm not like a person who has this, who has this attitude, uh, you know, the ups and downs of my attitude, and, and that now I'm just happy to, to be down, and I'm saying, oh, we're going to go there, we're gonna, I'm going to get crucified there. No. I'm telling you, and as, as God, as the Son of God, he's not going to lie. If he says he's going to Jerusalem to get crucified, he's going to Jerusalem to get crucified. And that is through this crucifixion that the greatest event in human history ever took place. Amen? Where Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. And without the crucifixion, there would be no resurrection. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there would be no resurrection for us. And death would reign, just like it did from Adam until then. Death would continue to reign, and everyone that dies would just die. But because of what Jesus did... Something great was happening. Peter needed to be rebuked at that moment. Um, in fact, um, in, uh, in, in chapter 26, he says, I will never stumble. And, uh, and Peter, Peter was, uh, um, he claimed that he would never stumble. But he came to that low point in his life after Jesus was, was crucified. And he, even though he claimed, I would never forsake my Christ. What do we find him doing? Three times he denies that he even knew Christ. He even cursed the person for pushing the point. But you know what? That's, that's the low point of his life. Aren't you glad that we're not judged by our low points? And, and, and we have uh, a Peter who learned from his mistake and he became uh, an apostle of the Lord. He took the gospel to the ends of the earth. Amen? And, and here he, he got the gospel out. Um, and uh, we, we, just see, we, see, we see God using him in miraculous ways. I think probably one of my favorite stories uh, um, would actually be from Acts 15. In Acts 15, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter did not see eye to eye on some issues. And so they did, they followed the proper steps of biblical conflict management. 
and they submitted themselves to the authority of James, who was the, the pastor in the church of Jerusalem. In fact, this has been known that now this event is called the Council of Jerusalem. And, and so you have these two who are, who are in disagreement. They submit themselves to, to, to James. By the way, that doesn't sound like a pope, does it? If he was infallible, he'd say, no, my word is law. So just, just, just to throw that out there. He, he, here he was, he humbled himself. And, and so Paul gives his argument, and he argues from Scripture his point of view. And Peter doesn't even have to give his argument. You know what he says? He says, Paul's right, and I repent. Paul's right. What a humble man. And I'll tell you one thing. Not only do, is, it, is it the inquisitive people that tend to, to, to learn a lot of information, it's the people who are willing to admit that they're wrong that really grow in their wisdom. Isn't that true? And, and so the people who, who, can, who will never allow someone else to point into their lives and have input into their lives because they always have an excuse for why they did what they did or why they believe what they believe, those people never learn anything in their fools. Isn't that true? But Peter was the type of man who, who when he was confronted with Scripture, said, you know what, Paul, you're right. I was wrong. I'll get back on track. And he did. And he took the gospel to the ends of the earth. In fact, uh, he not only, and when the real trial came in his life, he not only did not deny Christ, but he was a martyr for Christ. Even to the point of death. In fact, tradition tells us that he, he um, asked to be crucified upside down because he did not consider himself worthy to be killed in the same manner as Jesus Christ. Do you think we have anything we could learn from Peter? I hope you do. I hope you believe that, that Peter has so much to teach us. And then the timing of this letter is important, too, because the timing of this letter comes right towards the end of his death, or towards the end of his death, the end of his life, because he knew he was going to die. In 2 Peter 1, verses, if you want to look at 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, this is what we read. It says, yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you. To explain that, his tent, in this, in this case, he's talking about his body. Why? Because it's a temporary dwelling. By the way, when, when we think of our body as temporary, we tend to, uh, to recognize that our body is not eternal, right? It's, going, it's mortal, we're going to die. And, and as you get a little bit older, that sinks in a little bit more and more. Right? When you're 20 years old and you're, and you're in great shape and, and, so, and then you think of your body as, a, as being permanent. And then you get to be a little bit older, right? And some of you know what I'm talking about. And, and you get to a point where you, you're kind of glad it's just your tent, right? Because you're looking forward to that home. And, and this is what Peter's saying. That, that He's saying, while I'm in this tent, he says, I need to remind you, verse 14, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent. What does he say? Soon... Somewhere, the light's at the end of the tunnel here. He's seeing that in the foreseeable future, he was going to get rid of his tent. He was going to physically die. This is just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. So now he's thinking about his own death. And he's saying, I want to leave you with a reminder. I want to leave you with something so that, that uh, when I'm not here to tell you these things, you'll still have something to do that. That's a, that's a great thought, isn't it? In fact, I, my grandmother, uh, near the end of her life, uh, we, we sat down with her with a video camera and just let her just talk, just tell stories. And I love, I love hearing those stories. And, and because you've got all of this wisdom from a, whole, from a whole lifetime that now we get to enjoy 
why, uh, e even though she's not here with us, we have this record of, of, of her life and the stories about my dad when he was a kid. It's awesome. Here we have the wisdom of Peter saying, this, I'm taking the wisdom of, of, of my life and I'm putting this down so that you'll have this information when I'm gone. And, uh, and so that's what was going on. It's this, this uh, foreseeable future. His death was coming. He knew he, went, he needed to put this in words. By the way, that's why 1 Peter was written to specific people in specific circumstances, the diaspora in certain locations. 2 Peter, he doesn't write it to any individual. It's for all of us. Directly written to Christians. And uh, so you can imagine the, the wisdom that he had to share. And so what, what do we find in his heart? And, and here we find that in the, in the book of 2 Peter, there are three primary concerns. And, and we're going to look at those and we're going we're to study those out as we look at these three, these three short chapters of 2 Peter. But here are the three concerns that we find. I'm just going to hit them lightly today so that we can start walking through those over the, next, uh, over the course of the next however long it takes to get through 2 Peter. First one, Peter's primary concern was that Christians were starting to lose their doctrine. His concern was that, pe that people were starting to lose their doctrine. Let's look, at, if you've got your Bibles with you, to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Let's read what it says. It says, But there were also false prophets among the people. In this context, he's talking about in the Old Testament. It says, And there were false prophets among the people, even as there will, will be... New Testament now, false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. Wow, there's a lot in this verse. But what was his concern? At the end of his days, his concern was that the people were starting to lose their doctrine. He was concerned that there were going to be false teachers. False teachers bring in false what? Doctrine. And they were going to start to believe in, in, in destructive heresies. What does heresy mean? It means a false doctrine. See, they're, they're, the, the church is going to allow false doctrine to come in. And, and people are going to teach false things, things that are not true, even to the point that it denies the lordship of Jesus Christ who bought us. And, and, and so the work that was, that, was, that, was, that was done on the cross loses its value because of these these heretical doctrines that were going to be coming into the church. Wow. I don't know about you, but I think Peter had some real insight there. Because he not only saw what was going to happen in his lifetime, but we're going to, he, it's something that you see throughout the lifetime of the church. Where you have the church, and, and the church starts to do what is, what's, what's right, and God blesses the church, and it grows, and people are getting saved all over the place. And then what happens? False doctrine comes in and starts eating the church from the inside out. And, to, and and you think of some of the great revivals that took place in Europe, and then you go to Europe today? You, you, you go to, to where some of these, these, these great reformers uh, had their, their ministry and how that, the Reformation took place. And you go there today, the churches are dead. And we see this false doctrine coming in, and that was a concern to Peter. The second primary concern that we find um, is that Christians... We're starting to lose their discernment. The Christians were starting to lose their discernment. So not only were, it was the false doctrine going to come in, he was saying, you too are going to, you're going to fall for these doctrines. Look what he says in verses 2 and 3 of, of chapter 2. It says, and many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. 
let that sink in for a minute. Not only are people going to, to teach something false, but many, many of you are what? You're going to follow them. You're going to hear this stuff, it's going to sound good, and you're going to follow them. And you're going to follow them right to destruction. And, and it's even to say, because of whom, the way of truth will be blasphemed. In other words, it's going to get to the point where those who actually say, I'm going to follow the truth and the truth only, if you follow the truth, you're going to be made fun of by the mainstream of the church. Let that sink in. They're going to make fun of you. Oh, you people who believe the truth. They're not going to say that because everyone thinks they believe the truth, right? That's the nature of deception is you think you believe the truth. And so here, he says, you're not going to have the discernment to recognize false doctrine when it's right in front of you. Is that true about the church today? I, I, I think it is. I think, I think the American church fits the, the concerns that Peter had for the early church as well. Um, you know, when you, when you look at that, look at verse 3. It goes on to say, it says, by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. Uh, Peter keeps bringing, bringing up that there's going to be payment for this. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a payment for this. But here we see there's deceptive words. In other words, people are going to present something that is wrong, a false doctrine, but they're going to do it such a way that it sounds really good. And that way, people are going to follow it. People are going to say, yeah, okay, that, yeah, this is the right thing. Uh, th- you know, this is... This is the, the way it goes. Um, and and what, are they, uh, what, are they, what are they doing? They're, they're, they're hitting you in the area of your covetousness. You, you're going to want, they're going to take your, what you feel are your needs. We call, the Bible calls them wants. We call them needs. Uh, and, and, and they're going to make you feel like, oh, there's something that I want. And they're going to make you feel like you can get what you want if you just follow me. Pay me along the way. That's what, isn't that what the televangelists tend to do? I'm not, not saying every televangelist out there is bad. There are some good ones. But, uh, but they're hard to find when you turn on the TV on Sunday morning. Isn't that true? And you find these, these, these people who, who, who are, are, are finding ways because they, they, out of covetousness, they want something that you have. Um, this week, someone posted on Facebook um, a, a little clip from, from Kenneth Copeland. Uh, and he was, uh, did anyone else see this? Uh, Kenneth Copeland was talking to somebody that he was interviewing, someone else in the, in the, in the ministry of sorts. And, and this guy was explaining and telling a story of, of just lifting up his hands on a plane and praying to the Lord. And, and Kenneth Copeland stops in there and says, no, it's important to mention here that we who are, you know, up, the uppity ups, he didn't call it that, but the uppity ups of, of, uh, of Christianity... Uh, we, should, we would not be able to do what we do on a, on a commercial plane. With our, this is why we need our own private jets, right? And, and, and so they spend another two minutes or so probably talking about this, talking about uh, um, why it's important for the people uh, to, to pay them enough money that they can afford private jets, right? And in that conversation, he even says something like, well, whenever you go on a... On a, on a on an airline, you know, the, the normal commercial airlines. He says, you, you can't get alone with God because all these people are asking you to pray for him. I don't have time for that. I'm telling you, if you're a minister of, of Christ and you don't have time to pray for somebody, you're in the wrong ministry. Amen? 
and, and it, it broke my heart to hear this, and I'm thinking, man, this is, this is horrible. And, and I see that there's a lack of doctrine, but now there's a lack of discernment as well. And we see it. Um, a couple months ago, I was, I was flipping through the stations. I was uh, listening to one of the Christian radio stations. I don't remember what, which one it was. I remember it was not WCSG, but it was an, a different one. And, and all of a sudden, my, my mind catches what I'm hearing in, in the advertisement, and it was an advertisement for a casino. And I thought, wait a minute. Wasn't I listening to a Christian radio station? Yes, I was. I was listening to it. And, and all of a sudden, they're talking about if, these, if you call in right now, you could win this something or other. They would actually give you a whole day. A whole day. And it was a Sunday. And so, so they're trying to get you out of church on a Sunday, into the casino on Sunday, yet somehow there was a, such a lack of discernment that no one seemed to think that it was a bad idea to promote the casino. On a Christian radio station. Does that, you see what I'm saying? We live in a culture where there is a lot of, uh, of, of watered-down doctrine, and now we see a lot of watered-down discernment as well. By the way, if you've ever known someone who's had an addiction to gambling, you know the damage that it causes. Amen? And, uh, um, and you, see, you see people lose everything they've saved up for years, decades of their life. Gone like that. We saw in Detroit when they added the casino, we saw how the unemployment, or not unemployment, the um, uh, bankruptcy rate went up by 10 times one night when that thing opened. I- I'm telling you, there, these are dest- there are destructive things out there, and if we don't have discernment, we're going to fall into those things. Amen? And uh, so it's, it's very important. The third, the third concern that we uh, find of Peter's in this book that we'll talk through is that Christians we're starting to participate in depravity. Uh, I skip forward just a few verses into, to uh, verse 18 of chapter 2. Uh, and look at this. He says, for, for when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. And so they're going to use, I love that, the wording here. They will use swelling words. What does that mean? Words that are inflated. They're, they're, they're taken beyond what they're, they actually mean. They'll use alluring uh, uh, or swelling words of emptiness. So it sounds really good. When you study it out, guess what? It's empty. Just totally empty. Um, to do what? To convince you to pursue your natural lusts. They're going to allure you using your natural lusts. There are, there are lusts that we have, things that we want, and, and by nature, many of those things are not good for us. Amen? And this is from birth. This is just the way we are. You ask, you ask any child if, if they want ice cream for dinner or, or a full, healthy meal for dinner, what are they going to choose? Right? This is just, it's by nature. And, and as adults, we have our own ice creams, right? We have our own things in life. And... Uh, and, and we see that the, we, we use these swelling words to convince you that you can pursue the lusts of your flesh without consequence. Uh, let, let's get real here for a moment. Um, Cedarville University is uh, it's the alma mater for my mom and my brother. Um, and the, the new president there has enacted what he, what he's, he calls the, the BCCP, the, the Biblically Consistent Curriculum Policy. Anyone hear of this this week? This is, this is a big story this week. Uh, so it's the Biblically Consistent Curriculum Policy. So the Vice President of Acad- Academics, his name uh, Lauren Reno, and his assistant, 
uh, Thomas Mach, or Mac, something like that, they drafted a policy that would extend this concept uh, in, into, the, into real life. So the idea behind the biblically consistent curriculum policy is that, that the professors should only use curriculum and teach from a curriculum from, a, from an idea that is consistent with the Bible. Does that make sense? So yes, you can teach evolution, but you just can't teach evolution as true because it's not consistent with the Bible. You can teach, uh, you can teach different theories of, of psychology. Some of those theories are pretty out there. You can teach them, but you can't teach them as true. You, know, you have to teach the truth alongside of error. Does that, does that make sense? So the vice president of academics and, and his assistant said, well, if we're, if we're going to be consistent with all of this, then we need to also be consistent with, with uh, Philippians 4. Philippians 4, 8. And, and you might be familiar with the passage, uh, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, uh, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, what? Think on these things. And so they're saying, well, it, it can't just be in doctrine, but in, in discernment as well. Um, it has to be consistent with the scriptures. So they came up with this policy um, and, uh, that says we'll, that, that it's consistent. In fact, it's been dubbed the Philippians 4.8 policy uh, because it's based on whatever is pure. Think on these things. And here's the exact wording of it. It says, in general, faculty will avoid material that is pornographic. And then it, it describes that as purient, twisted, addicted, evil, or exploitive use of nudity to titillate or tempt. Or erotic, which means overt sexual connotation. So if you look at that, here's the root of it. It says, faculty will avoid material that is pornographic or erotic. Who could have a problem with that? Anyone here have a problem with that? Anyone here say, oh, I don't want to send my kids to Cedarville if they, if they don't allow them to see pornographic erotic material. No, no, I've never heard a parent say that. Who could have a problem with that? The answer to that is apparently the mainstream Christians. I'm telling you, mainstream Christians. Uh, uh, Christianity Today uh, posted an article um, that I would say was favorable to the dissenting professors. There were professors that were livid that they are now limited in the curriculum that they can use. Um, And so Christianity Today wrote an article favorable to the dissenting professors um, who felt that they were unable now to to educate these, these poor, sheltered students. Can you imagine that? Uh, here's a couple quotes from the article. I, I, I uh, wrote, those, wrote those down here. Here's one. It says, The new policies and instructions for faculty assigning reading material. It says, Passages that are clearly pornographic, erotic, obscene, or graphic must be avoided. While it may be important to expose students to various genres of writing, examples need to be selected to avoid inappropriate material. Sounds good, right? Listen to this. One faculty member who spoke with Christianity Today said the Philippians 4-8 policy was the tipping point that prompted several professors in multiple departments to begin looking for jobs elsewhere. Some have started going to counseling to address anxiety over their future. I'm not making this up. I'm not making this up. Can you imagine, like, feeling as a professor that if I can't show pornographic or erotic material, then I don't know how I can do my job. You know, um, 
One of them wrote this. It says, I've also seen verses like this, talking about Philippians 4.8, if unevenly applied, have two results. One, keeping young people from being able to discern the difference between depicting and glorifying sin and keeping young people from being able to discern between excellence and safety, she said. So I'd love to see Christian colleges not focus only on verses like Philippians 4.18, but, on also, but also on other passages such as Acts 17, 16-32, which is uh, where Paul went to the Areopagus in Athens. So when they think about their standards. Well, that sounds like, now you have some developing a biblical argument for allowing pornographic and, and erotic material. A biblical art, using scripture. But let's look at that a little bit closer, okay? For a second. Let's look at the scripture. She says she would focus not only on Philippians 4, 8, but on Acts 17. But really her argument is saying you should ignore Philippians 4, 8 and only look at Acts 17. Is that a problem? Because if she had said to look at both, then she would have said this is a good this is a good policy because it, it fits. It fits the one, right? But instead, she's really saying, ignore one, focus on the other. The other problem is what's actually in Acts 17. Paul goes to Athens, and Paul did what he does in every city that he, he evangelizes in. He looks to see what his common ground is, and he starts there. So with Jews, their common ground is they believe the Old Testament. So he starts with the Old Testament and explains and reasons from Scripture, the Bible says, from scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. He uses their own prophets to show that Jesus is the, the, the answer to their prophecies. But he, here he goes to Athens, they're not Jews. In Athens, they're, they're Greeks. I mean, they have great, you know, philosophers that have come through Athens, right? Plato, for example. And so what does he do? He goes around, and yes, he looks at everything they believe. So he's looking at their architecture, he's looking at, at, at uh, their sculpt, uh, sculptures, he's looking at all of that to understand where they are. And he says, the place that we can begin is we all believe in the supernatural. I'm going to start there. Right? In fact, he takes one. It, it's, it's, a, it's a carved image, of, and it says, to the unknown God. Where did the unknown God come from? That's from Socrates. Right? Socrates, we, we have this, uh, the account through Plato. Socrates took all of the gods of their culture and proved them wrong and said there must be one God who's in charge of everything. And I don't know who he is. He's the unknown God. And he was killed for that. But then later people said, well, he did make some good points. So they erect a, a, a sculpture. So Paul comes into to Athens, looks at that, and says, I'm going to tell you who that God is. Now, did Paul have to look at erotic or pornographic material to come to that conclusion? No. And so there's a big difference. So there's a big jump to say, well, because Paul looked at secular material, we can look at any secular material. You see what I'm saying? What, what is this? I, you know, when, what is this? This is swelling words of what? Emptiness. Swelling words of emptiness. It sounds good until you actually think about it. it until, it sounds great until you actually use discernment and you use doctrine. By the way, speaking of doctrine, does the, the Bible already says a lot about what we should not put our eyes on, doesn't it? It says, I will set no evil thing before my eyes, right? The Bible says that a man who, who looks at a woman in lust has committed adultery with her in his heart. Uh, we have the example of Job who says, I have, I have uh, made a, resolve, a resolution in my heart that I will not look at a woman in lust. We, we have all of these things that tell us very clearly, but, but no, you have to ignore those. Let's just look at one, one context, twist it, turn it, 
shake it, put it upside down until it means what we want it to mean. Right? What does that mean? It means you're alluring through the lust of the flesh. When you try to make a text mean what you want it to mean, then, you're, then, then that doctrine is alluring you through the lust of your flesh. And, and I'm telling you, there are, there are false teachers out there today that are going to try and convince you that whatever you want to be true is true. And that they need your money. Right? That's what, that's, you're going to find that. You're going to see that consistently. And, and, and you're going to see, that's why a lot of them have, have um, stadiums for churches. I mean, they'll fill the stadiums because if you think, boy, if I just give 10% of my, of my tithe, I'm going to get, you know, tenfold of that back and I'm going to, then yeah, it sounds great. But the truth is so much better. And, uh, and so here they lure you through the lusts of the flesh. And I'm telling you, they're out there today. They, this is not something that just happened in the early church and that Satan just gave up and said, well, that didn't work, right? Satan is still at work and he's still trying to convince us of things that actually lead us to destruction. And, and we sometimes, like sheep, we're, we're, we're feeling like, wow, you know, this person said that, that I could get $75,000 from our government if I just give them my bank information. Yeah, this sounds great. But it's a trap. It's a trap. And what God has in mind is so much better. And, and so, <clears throat> what's the answer? I think the answer lies in understanding the relationship between doctrine, discernment, depravity. And so there, there are three conclusions here as, uh, as we begin to wind down for today. Three conclusions. Number one, poor doctrine leads to poor discernment. Poor doctrine leads to poor discernment. When we do not study the scriptures, when we, we, do, not, we do not fill ourselves up with, with good doctrine, then what happens? We lose our discernment. And we no longer recognize something false when it's there. And, and, and we need to be discerning people, so we have to have good, good doctrine. Number two, poor discernment leads, leads us into depravity. When you don't have good discernment, it's going to affect the way you live your life. It happens. And all of a sudden, when you don't recognize, you know, it's like if you don't have good discernment in what you eat, it's going to affect your health. Right? It's the same way spiritually. If you don't have discernment in what you allow in, in, in your eyes and your ears and in your, you know, in your five senses, you, 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 you don't discern between what's good and bad there, what's going to happen. The negative is going to take over. It's like a virus in your computer. And, uh, and, and, and a good discernment is like, is like a good virus protection program that says, oh, wait, this is bad information. This should, we should not allow this in the computer. Right? And... So poor discernment leads us into depravity, following our, our, our natural lusts. By the way, that word natural means this is what comes to us by nature. This is, the, this is, this is normal. You ever hear the advice, follow your heart? Is, is that good advice? No. The heart is a great thing. It was made by God. It was never intended to be the leader. It's a, it's, it, I, I always say it's, it's the caboose, not the locomotive. All right? It's an important part. The heart is great in that sense. But it's deceitful. Jeremiah 17, 9, what does it say? The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? If you think you know your own heart, you don't even know your own heart. You, you're going to think you're doing something wise, and there's going to be something in your heart that you didn't even recognize saying, here's a selfish reason behind this. 
And that's why we have to pray, Lord, search me, oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any wicked way in me. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. Uh, how many of you appreciate to have the Holy Spirit and says, oh, Dave, that's not right. Don't do that. And, and, uh, and, but instead, we shut them up sometimes because poor discernment leads us into depravity. And then lastly, depravity leads us to destruction. Depravity leads us to destruction. Uh, for, for some, it's, if they've never accepted Jesus Christ, the destruction is our own. And, and, and if you've never accepted Jesus Christ, what's the ultimate end for you? It's destruction. Total destruction. But even for those who accepted Jesus Christ, you created an environment of destruction. In fact, what did the verse that we just read a few moments ago say? It says that the, the world will blaspheme those who follow the way of truth. Oh, that's destructive. You know, when, when the world blasts those who follow the truth... And so, so poor doctrine leads to poor discernment. Poor discernment leads us into depravity, and depravity leads us into destruction. Anyone want to go to destruction? Is that as their end? I don't think there's going to be a single hand in the, in the room. So here's the problem. Here's the problem is that, is that no one thinks he or she has poor discernment. I mean, this is the nature of deception, right? The nature of deception is you don't think you're deceived. And so, and so we think that we're not deceived, but we may be deceived. And so one of my goals for today is just for us to, be, to come to a point where we'd be willing to say, Lord, am I deceived? We'd be open enough to say, Lord, am I deceived or not? As we continue in, in, uh, in, in this series, I'm going to ask you for three things, for three attitudes, really, um, as we study Second Peter. And, and we'll close with this today. But... Uh, three attitudes as we study Peter. Number one, interest. In other words, Peter lived with Christ. He was intimate with Christ. He was used by Christ in such a way that we would be crazy not to be interested in what Peter has to say. Right? Also, Peter wrote this under inspiration of whom? The Holy Spirit. So if the Holy Spirit, this is for us because it comes from God. This is from God to us. That should be Enough that we would be interested. Amen? Amen. And, and so I would say, we, be interested as we get into this. Number two, I'd say intellectual honesty. Um, You've you got to be willing to look past yourself and say, could I be deceived here? Maybe, have I believed something wrong? Because I'll tell you, it's very easy to spot deception when it's in somebody else. Oh, it's really, oh man, that person got token, right? Uh, got tooken? That's horrible. You know, where'd that come from? Got tooken. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I'm never going to live that down in front of my kids because I correct their grammar all the time, don't I? <laughs> so, it's better than to say, me and so-and-so did this. No, so-and-so and I did that. And then their smart uncle will say, you did that, you did that Dad? <laughs> no, nah, but, um, but we, it's very easy to spot deception when it's in somebody else very difficult to spot deception when it's in yourself. But you know who was good at that? Peter. Peter was able to build his arguments for what he was about to say. He hears Paul give his arguments and says, that's right. Paul, you're, you're right, I'm wrong. That's what I'm asking of you today, too. If you want to learn what Peter learns, you have to, to be teachable like he was teachable. Does that make sense? And so we have to look at this, and, and as we study Second Peter, we have to be like him to say, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to change my beliefs if I'm confronted with Scripture. 
Not based on someone's opinion, not based on my opinion. I'll, tell you, I'll be the first to weigh everything I say through this book. Because I'm just a human being trying to explain this book the best I can. But I'll make mistakes. This book never will. And so Peter, when he was confronted with God's word, humbled himself. That's intellectual honesty right there. The third thing would, would be intentionality. Intentionality. What I mean by that is when we say that we're intentional, it means we're proactive. We're thinking ahead of time. We're not just reactive. We're proactive. And, and so I would ask you that you not come, to sun, come every Sunday and, and say, well, I wonder what Pastor Day has got today. Right? That's a reactive. You come here, see what, see what happens to, to be on the docket, and then if you like it, you like it. If not, you don't. But I would say instead, be proactive, be intentional, and, and read ahead. And say, you know what, I'm going to read ahead because I want to study this passage a little bit. I want to understand this passage. So when we come here on Sunday, uh, you're, you're ready to, in, to engage in it. Does that make sense? And to understand it. And, and so to be intentional and say, Lord, I, I want to get something out of this series. I want to get something out of Second Peter that's going to change the way I live my life. Because I want to live in, in this world of deception in such a way that I'm not deceived by those who are trying to deceive me. Amen? And, and so that's what I'm going to ask you to do. In fact, by way of invitation today, I'm not going to ask anyone to get out of their seats. I'm not going to ask anyone to come forward today. Uh, what I'm going to ask is that if this is, if, if this is your commitment, that you're willing to, to say, Lord, I'm going, to, I'm going to be interested in this. I'm going to have intellectual honesty. And I'm going to be intentional about this. I'm going to make the commitment to, to read ahead, to read the book, um, and, 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 and get into, into, into this study. Then I'm just going to ask you to pray that prayer in just a moment right from your seats, right where you're at. And, uh, and of course, if there's anyone who's saying, Pastor Dave, I hear all this, and I'm not sure I'm even a, a believer, talk to me afterwards, right? I, I, will make, I will make time to show you from God's word how you can know for sure that you have eternal life. Just come talk to me. But for those of you who are part of the congregation, you're, you're, part, you're here because, because you want to grow in your relationship with Christ, I'm asking you to just make these simple commitments to the Lord right now for this series as we close in prayer, and I'll, I'll pray in just a moment, and then I'll give you an opportunity to pray as well. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for your word. I thank you for the way you worked in Peter's life. Though he was an imperfect man, he was a teachable person, and you taught him so much. And because of that, we have so much to glean from him and from this book. Lord, we thank you for inspiring the, the, this book through the, the Holy Spirit. So that we know that every word in this book is, is 100% accurate, is 100% truthful, is 100% relevant. And Lord, we need it for life and godliness. So that's what I pray for today, Lord. And I pray that right now you'd move in our hearts and that as we make a commitment to you, we would be committed to taking interest in this book, to, to being intellectually honest with ourselves and being intentional in our understanding that we will get out of this what we put into this. And so, Lord, right now, as we just enjoy just a moment of silence here, I pray that you would work in our hearts and that there would be commitments all around this room right now making that commitment to you. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. At this time, just keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed for just a moment and just pray that prayer in your own hearts. To say, Lord, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take interest. I'm going to be intellectually honest with you. I'm asking you to search me and know my heart. And I will be intentional in the study of this book. Take a few moments on your own and pray that prayer.